calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to Episode 9 of Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 18, Equinox. Frank brought the loaded lorry wagon down from the quarry in late afternoon and parked it carefully behind the village in preparation for an early departure. He was excused from guard duty and Jakey teamed up with Thomas for the first shift, leaving William and one of the more senior quarrymen for the later. The grim business of deciding which of the younger quarrymen would go with Frank and which would stay with the village boiled down to a series of arm-wrestling matches, three winners earning the privilege of a ride to town and back, with a certain amount of good-natured teasing about the trouble they'd be getting into while there. Hopeful expectation filled the air, driven in part by the realization that a full day had passed without the expected attack. Everybody but Thomas, William, and Tanith believed that the bullying had been nothing but boast. Afternoon faded to evening, and the village quickened with preparations for the celebration of the equinox, a soft drizzle petering out as sunset approached. Frank and Tanith, as the eldest members of the village, were designated to honor the All-Mother and All-Father by presenting the harvest gifts at moonrise. Frank knew the ceremony, having fulfilled the role in three of the four prior years. Tanith felt honored, if a bit overwhelmed, to be taking Mother Alderton's role in the harvest celebration to mark the midpoint of autumn. As the day drew to a close... Tanith took Amber aside. Is there something that Mother Alderton did that was special to the village? Amber shook her head. Just a simple offering and thanks for the harvest. She wasn't much on ceremony. Tanith had nodded, and she thought about her prayer to the All-Mother while they waited in the gathering dark for the silver disk to rise above the trees. She remembered previous harvest moon celebrations. Her teachers were frequently called on to thank the All-Mother, and the seamed, smiling, and tanned faces from her past slipped through her mind. At sunset, the scudding clouds broke open enough to reveal the darkening sky, and the whole village turned out to honor the full moon at Equinox. At the first hint of silver through the trees, Frank turned to the north and sprinkled a bit of apple cider onto the ground. Thank you to the guardian of the earth. He turned and spilled a few more drops onto the ground while facing the moon rising in the east. Thank you to the guardian of the air. He turned to the south and repeated the delicate spilling. Thank you to the guardian of fire. He turned to the west, where the setting sun had already dipped below the horizon, but where the clouds had covered them all day and continued to obscure the sky. He spilled a few more drops from his cup. Thank you to the guardian of water. He closed his circle and poured out the final drops of cider, and they spattered wetly on the soggy ground. Thank you to the All-Father for the bounteous harvest and the cycle of another year. 
he stepped back to give Tanith room. The moon continued its inexorable climb. As she stepped up, the full sheen appeared above the trees and cast her in an almost blue light as she faced the north and shook her sheaf of wheat to release a few of the grains. Thank you to the guardian of the north, bones of the world, for the soil in which we grow. As she turned, she could feel the earth beneath her boot heels, gritty and moist, tired after a season of growing, but fecund yet and filled with potential. She shook her sheaf again as a gentle gust tossed the grains upon the ground. Thank you to the guardians of the east, breath of the world, for the air that nourishes us, plant and animal alike. Turning south, she repeated the shake. Thank you to the guardians of the south, soul of the world, for the passion of life that renews us. She felt the heat in her belly rising as she turned to the west, clouds breaking open to show the ruddy final glow of the sun below the horizon, unseen behind tree and hill. Thank you to the guardian of the west, blood of the world, for the water that lets us flourish and grow. She turned back to the north and shook the sheaf one last time, the final grains raining out onto the damp soil. Thank you, All-Mother, for the gifts of your body and the fruits of your fields, which nurture and keep us all the year round. They stood there for a moment, Tanith facing north with the villagers arrayed in a half-circle behind her. Something quivered in the air and slowly subsided as the moon swam ever upwards and bathed the village in its argent light. Tanith turned to see them all staring at her, she looked uneasily from face to face, starting with Frank's slack-jawed expression and then scanning across the small crowd of adults and children. Their eyes were all dark and round. Some looked awed, some looked frightened. All looked at her. She glanced up at Frank at her side, and her voice was low. Did I do something wrong? Frank shook his head dumbly, his eyes wide. Tanith looked back across the small crowd, and they seemed to be blinking and moving about, if a bit dazedly, almost as if they were waking up. Amber moved first. She stepped forward and curtsied. William stepped up and bowed. One by one, each of the inhabitants of the village stepped forward and bowed or curtsied while Frank and Tana stood for the All-Mother and the All-Father. Tana smiled and nodded, acknowledging each one down to the smallest child. When they were done, everyone sauntered off in the silvery light to find their evening meals. William, Amber, and the two children waited for Frank and Tanith at the edge of the track to escort them to the house for dinner. Tanith turned to Frank once more as the last of the villagers finished their obeisance and wandered off. She held out her arm as a prompt, and he took the cue, held his up under hers in proper form to escort her from the field. She leaned in and murmured to him, That was unusual. I've never seen a Harvest Moon celebration quite like that. He turned his face toward her. Me either, Mum. She caught his look. What? That wasn't the way it's been done here before? I thought Mother Alderton did the ceremony. He all but laughed. Mother Alderton wasn't much on ceremony, Mum. He blew out a breath. I've never seen or felt anything like that. She cast him a look out of the corner of her eye, but they were approaching Amber and William, who turned to lead them onward, and she let the matter drop. Amber and Sadie had prepared a feast with a roasted joint of venison, along with squash and potatoes fresh from their gardens. The crusted yeast bread added an almost sweet counterpoint to the savory smells coming off the hearth as they stepped back into the warm hut after being outside in the damp and chilly darkness. At the threshold, Hamber and William lost their dazed expressions, and the party was soon joined by Thomas and Sadie and their children. In a matter of moments, Amber and Sadie had distributed cups of sweet cider, and the feast began in earnest. 
Frank and Tanith sat in the places of honor near the hearth. Tanith enjoyed being the all-mother surrogate much more than she'd expected. The children were all on their best behavior, and the meal was wonderful with just the right amounts of savory and sweet, meat and bread to balance. For dessert there was pie and fruit and soft cheese. As the evening wore on, Tanith began to flag. The combination of hot food, full belly, and jocularity among friends moved her from stuffed to stupor in a relatively short period of time. She found herself blinking and stretching her face to try to stay awake as sleep plucked the children away to dreamland. Even Amber and Sadie began to blink and yawn. The party broke up with Frank rising suddenly from his chair and announcing that he needed to find his bedroll in order to be fresh for the morrow. The movement sparked action, and in moments people were moving about, snuffing candles, banking fires, making trips to the privy. Sadie caught Amber's eye and nodded at the pile of sleeping children. Amber just smiled. Let him be. We can sort him out in the morning. Tanith rose and stretched, but still stumbled gratefully into her bedroll, stretching out on the firm floor, pulling the covers tightly around her and drifting gently off into the darkness, even as Frank, William, and Amber finalized plans for morning. The raven peered through the trees at the dark shapes just inside the forest's verge. Open ground beyond the forest's edge was painted in stark silver, and the shapes moved in silhouette. They smelled to her, a sharp smell, not the calling smell of meat, but something else, something man-made. It came faintly on the breeze, not pine pitch, a smell she knew from the forest, but sharp like pines, four of them now, two held shiny glass. The smell came from the bottles. The night around them was still. Even the raven huddled against the tree trunk heard only the soft susurrus of night wind in treetops. The day's soft rain had brought up the smells of rich loam and forest floor, the end of the rain had brought these man shapes, and she just wanted to sleep. One man spoke, and another man struck steel. A spark flicked onto a torch, the pale yellow light almost drowned by the brilliant silver beyond the wood. The two with bottles ran forward, with the torch man in the rear. They broke from cover and ran to the nearest house, approaching without stealth or grace, stumbling on the rough ground. They stopped a few feet from the building. The bottles spun end over end as they threw them, flashing in the moonlight, arcs of pale liquid pinwheeling outward until they hit the roof. The heavy glass didn't break but thunked loudly on the damp wood and rolled down the steep incline, falling to soft, damp earth at the foot of the wall. The man with the torch threw it up on the roof with a sidearm toss, and together the three of them turned and bolted back to the woods, ducking into the trees and past the one man, waiting. The torch found the liquid on the roof and a ribbon of fire traced across the dark incline as the torch followed the bottles and fell to earth, rolling off the steepness and dropping into the wet grass to smolder and almost got her out before finding the puddle of sharp-smelling liquid and igniting with a quiet whomp. Tanith woke with the word on her lips. Fire! Amber was just settling down to her own bed and looked over at Tanith, struggling out of her bedroll and grabbing for her staff. What is it, Mum? Fire. They've tried to set one of the huts on fire. Get help. She raced for the front door and threw it open. She scrambled up out of the house, her bare feet aware of the cold, wet ground under her, but drawing strength with every step as she ran. The disorientation of the dream soon aligned with the flickering light behind one of the houses, and she pelted across the yard to where she knew she'd find the two bottles of lamp oil in the weeds. The village seemed to spring to life all at once as men came out to see what was happening, pulling suspenders over shoulders even as they ran. 
Tana slipped on the grass but managed to maintain her balance and shouted, Here! Fire! Over here! The running men converged on her even as she ran at the fire, scattering the burning brands with the heel of her staff, even stomping out sparks with her bare wet feet. By the time William and Thomas came around the corner, only one small patch of lamp oil burned on the ground beside the torch that had ignited it. Tanith leaned on her staff but panted slightly to catch her breath. She pivoted to where she knew the men had come from. She could see their tracks in the moonlit grass where their rapid passage had shaken the water from the blades. Thomas turned and drew, but held, since there were no targets, just as Frank pelted around the corner. William and Frank stomped out the remaining fire with their boots, and the crisis was past. The men all looked at Tanith. Frank spoke. Are you all right, Mum? She glowered at the tree line for another moment, but turned to look at them. Yes, fine. She took another deep breath. It just scared me, and I was afraid they'd come back and throw more lamp oil on it when they discovered it had just rolled off. Thomas glanced at Frank with a kind of I-told-you-so look, and Frank looked at Tanith. William, for his part, picked up the two heavy bottles and smelled each. Lamp oil, right enough. Thomas turned to Tanith. Thank you, Mum. She was too tired and too shaken to respond with more than a nod. Frank offered his arm as if she were the all-mother again, and she took it, leaning on it heavily, and she let him lead her back to the cottage and her bed. Chapter 19. Shared Secret That was just a warning. William looked around at the circle of faces, pale in the morning's light. A warning? Jakey frowned and pointed to the singed ground. If one of those bottles had actually broken up there, we'd have lost this house. I think that was their plan, but it didn't break. William turned to Jakey with a calm look. And who lives in this house? Jakey spluttered a little bit, but he had to admit the truth in the end. Nobody. It was a warning. It wasn't as effective as they'd have liked, perhaps, but a warning. Jakey grumbled but subsided. That's why we have to send your boys off with Frank, Jakey. You knew that before. Jakey nodded. But that was before they was attacking the town. Sending them off with Frank means we've got three fewer people here to defend us if we need him. William sighed. And not sending them means we leave Frank, the horses, the wagon, and the cargo open to attack. You like that thought any better? He glared at Jakey. Here we've got more than enough folk to protect the village, even with Ethan, Richard, and Harry going along to cover Frank. Thomas spoke up for the first time since the confrontation over sending off the quarrymen began. We're dealing with cowards and bullies here, Jakey. They're not going to try for equal numbers in a moving wagon when they can hang around here and pick off easy targets. Jakey nodded triumphantly and started to say something, but Thomas cut him off. And if we don't give Frank cover... They'll hit him as the easy target and take away much more than we can afford to lose. Jakey saw the logic, but he was just bullheaded enough to need to fight about it. Frank put an end to it. Sooner gone, sooner back. He turned to his traveling companions and jerked his head toward the back of the wagon. Mount up, boys. Let's get this thing moving. Daylight's burning and they're probably watching from the woods. He spat on the ground. Let's give them something to look at besides us palavering the day away. The three quarrymen had already stowed their traveling gear in the wagon, and they quickly scrambled up onto the bed before their obstreperous boss could interfere with the departure any longer. Frank pulled the wagon's brake and flicked the reins with a clucking sound. He up there! The horses leaned into the traces, and the wagon moved off across the still damp ground toward the packed surface of the pike, rumbling slightly. 
In a few minutes, the wagon had made it to the road and turned north. Several of the villagers watched them go, and Megan raised a hand to wave farewell to her husband, Harry, who waved back from the tailgate of the lorry wagon as it moved slowly out of sight. Jakey made a disgusted noise, gathered his remaining three helpers, and started trudging up the track toward the quarry. William stood beside the path and frowned at his feet while Thomas crouched on his haunches nearby. Amber and Sadie looked to William. Amber asked the question everybody was thinking. Now what? Thomas grinned and William shrugged. Now we wait. How long? We can't keep these kids bottled up forever, and you and Thomas will need to get on with your work, too. William sighed and ran a hand through his hair. I know. He looked at Thomas, who shrugged in return. They've given us a warning. They'll give us another, and then they'll be back. He took a deep breath and let it out. I think, as long as we're vigilant, they can't really cause us much harm. They're not going to try a straight-on attack. It wouldn't be useful to damage us so we can't pay them. You're not going to pay anyway. Thomas spoke softly, but his voice carried clearly to where Tanith was standing beside Amber's back door. William sighed. Yeah, and I'm not so sure what will happen when they realize that. They know you're your father's son, Will. You think they've forgotten? William grimaced and shook his head. No, I don't. Thomas glanced at the women standing nearby and didn't say any more. William sighed loudly. Tell you what. Let's give the kids a good run here for an hour or so, and then I'll take them up to the barn with me. We'll get a jump on cutting and stacking firewood. Amber nodded, and Sadie opened the door to let the children out of the house. They ran and screamed and hooped like wild things across the back of the village. Megan joined the group, and her three went herring after the rest, while the adults alternately grinned and glanced nervously at the woods. Tanith smiled at the sight of the youthful enthusiasm, and even Thomas seemed amused. William looked around. Is everyone accounted for? Where's Bethany, Rebecca, and Charlotte? Thomas jerked his head toward Jakey's house. They're holed up with Charlotte. William ticked off some list silently in his head as he counted on his fingers, and then nodded. Okay, that's all of us. His voice sounded tired. Amber and Sadie took Megan into the house, and they all reappeared shortly with mugs of tea. The adults sipped the hot brew and thought their own thoughts while the joyful shouts and laughter of children echoed down the veil. Tanith felt their awkwardness. The easy camaraderie the women had shared before was not gone, but it had become stilted. They looked at her in quick glances and flickering looks. She wasn't sure what it meant, but it made her uneasy, and she looked from one face to the next, trying to get a hint. She was startled to see that William watched her and not the children. What is it? The words were out of her mouth before she'd even thought them. William looked to Amber, who looked back at him with that look that wives give husbands when they need to stop shilly-shallying and get on with it. Mom, can we ask how you knew? The question caught Tanith a bit sideways. As soon as he said it, she realized she should have expected it. Impatient with the way he handled it, Amber elbowed her husband out of the way and continued. Mom, you jumped from your bedroll yelling about fire and raced out into the night. You scared the stuffing out of me. She smiled gently, but there was a look of concern, even fear, in her eyes. Tana sighed and looked at her feet, uncertain as to how much to say. I had a dream. She said it softly, but the morning breezes hadn't yet stirred the world, and her voice carried to them even over the sounds of the children. Sadie looked at Megan and shrugged, but Amber pressed on. A dream, Mum. You dreamed that there was a fire, and you ran out into the night yelling? Her voice was gentle, her eyes pleading. Tanith looked at the concern in all their eyes. 
Yes. Sounds odd, but it wasn't the first time. She paused and sipped her tea to gain some time to think. I've had them before. At first, I didn't believe them. Now I do. Her voice dropped even more, and she realized that she'd spoken the truth. She did believe them. The raven visions had proven too reliable, too real, to be taken as anything but visions, gifts from the All-Mother. A raven caught in the forest, Tana's head snapped to look in the direction, but the others seemed not to have heard it. William followed her gaze. What is it, Mom? Another vision? No. She shook her head. They only seem to come when I'm sleeping. Then how do you know they're real, Mom? Amber looked more concerned than curious. Tanith felt a flash of irritation but damped it down. She sounded like a confused old woman, even to herself. She took a deep breath and let it out. She looked at them all, looking back at her. They looked so concerned, so caring. She said a silent prayer to the All-Mother and felt a comforting warmth rise in her. She decided to tell them. At first I didn't. The first vision was after the riders came and we drove them off. I went to my hut and sat down at the table. She smiled apologetically. I was so tired. Standing up with them took a lot out of me. Thomas nodded and his eyes said he remembered very well. Amber's voice was soft and low. Go on, Mom. Then what? Tana sipped her tea and recalled the scene. I fell asleep and I had a dream. It was if I were looking through the eyes of a raven flying above the road. I saw the four riders heading south. They stopped and had some kind of talk, but then rode on. I woke up then and thought it was an odd dream. It was so real. I could feel the wind. She shrugged almost apologetically. That one was the first, and I thought it was just a dream. She looked around to gauge her audience before continuing. The next day I was fixing a cup of tea and laid down on my bedroll, just to rest while the water heated. I fell asleep and had a dream. But this time I dreamed that one of the men was watching us from the woods. I was looking at him through the eyes of a raven and a tree behind him. He saw the bird and threw a twig, so I, it, flew off and I woke up. I was afraid that he'd still be in there, so I went up to the barn and got Frank to come with me and we found the spot in the woods where the man had been. She looked at Thomas. You saw the place too. Thomas nodded slowly. I wondered how you could have seen anybody in that wood, Mum. It wasn't like you'd just be able to see through the tree. I'm sorry I didn't say more, but it sounds crazy, even to me. They all smiled encouragingly. And then last night? William prodded her to go on. Last night I fell asleep after the feast. I dreamed I was back in the woods, watching them where they waited, all four of them. They had bottles, but I didn't know what they were doing besides watching us. Two men threw bottles and one threw a lighted torch. When they threw the bottles up onto the roof... I spread lamp oil around, but it didn't break. Then I woke up and just acted without thinking. The rest you know. How did you know last night's dream was real, Mom? Amber was more curious now. It was a raven vision again. Tanis shrugged helplessly. The raven was sitting in a tree further in the woods, could see them outlined against the moonlight in the field. The small group looked around at each other and then back at her. William cleared his throat. You'll tell us if you have another raven vision, Mum? She gaped at him. You believe me? They looked at each other again, looking confused this time before William responded. Well, of course, Mum. Why wouldn't we? Tanith found herself at a loss. Because it's crazy? I'm dreaming that I'm a raven and acting like it's real? That doesn't sound a little bit odd to you? 
Her voice was rising in pitch. All the worry and fear came bubbling out. Amber smiled. Well, of course it sounds odd, Mum. She looked around and shrugged. The truth is you did see the man in the woods, or at least where he'd been. She looked at Thomas, who answered with a wry smile and a nod of his head. She looked back at Tanith. And you certainly saved that house from the fire last night. That was certainly real. And you had no other way to know it, did you? Tanith shook her head, unable to speak. Amber gave a little sideways nod of her own. So? There's lots of stuff we don't understand in this world, Mum. After the blessing you gave last night at Harvest Moon, I'm thinking you're touched by the All-Mother, Mum, pardon my saying so. Tanith held back a snort. Those touched by the All-Mother were generally regarded as crazy, so Amber wasn't really making her feel any better, but she found it a great relief that her story wasn't met with scorn and derision. The relief was nearly palpable as she realized that the weight of uncertainty was greatly lessened by her sharing of the stories. She closed her eyes and bowed her head, saying another silent prayer of thanks to the All-Mother. She sighed in relief and sipped her tea, which was growing cold. In the forest, a raven called hoarsely. All eyes flicked in that direction, and not just Tanis. When they caught themselves, everyone gave a small and easy laugh, which broke the knot of tension and allowed the group to break up. William called to the children. He and Thomas escorted them up to the barn to play while the women returned to Amber's house to begin the cycle of food preparation anew. Tanith was given a place by the hearth, a fresh mug of hot tea, and some small tasks to keep her hands busy. She feared that she'd feel odd in their company after sharing her secret. She delighted in being wrong. Chapter 20 Waiting Within two days, the village was back to near normal. Tanith moved in with Megan and her children while Harry was on the road with Frank. After some initial awkwardness, the two women soon found they liked each other's company and fell into an easy comfort when together, even as Amber and Sadie treated Tanith with a respectful reserve. In the meantime, the quarrymen finished closing the quarry for the season and set up one of the spare houses as a kind of barracks where they could rotate guard duties more equitably and still have a place to sleep without inconveniencing one of the households. If Jakey was a bit prickly about the lack of work that had been done, he took up a shift as guard readily enough, and Tanith thought he'd grown somewhat less concerned for the quarry as he was drawn into plans for building the inn. As time went on, there was no repeat of the attack, nor had Andrew Birchwood and his bully boys returned to demand their retribution. Most of the villagers began to talk openly about their hope that it was over. Thomas was not one of them, nor was Tanith. William was firmly convinced that the worst had not yet come. Kenneth and Megan heard men walk by their house and knock on William's door just before sundown on the second day after Harvest Moon. They followed in their wake to see what new thing had happened. They found three of the younger quarrymen outside Amber and William's back door, talking earnestly to William, who stood on the floor just inside. Carl Bolton, a squared-off youngster with heavy arms, seemed to be the leader of the group. Tanith looked around but didn't see Jakey anywhere and wondered what that meant. "'It's only been two days, Carl.' William was shaking his head. "'They'll be back.' and when they do, it's not going to be to sprinkle a little lamp oil around. Carl looked up at his friends who shook their heads. Okay, William, but how long are we going to have to stay up, Garden? If I wanted to be a soldier, I'd have joined the King's Own. How long do you want to keep waking up on the green side of the sod, Carl? William's voice was quiet and reasonable. Carl looked startled at that. William continued in his quietly reasonable voice. As soon as we let down our guard, people will start getting hurt. Some might be killed. Birchwood and his boys have killed before. Out here, there's precious little to keep them from killing again, except they're cowards and won't face a fair fight. Carl recovered a bit of his composure. 
Well, how long then, William? A week, a month, all winter? What? William shrugged. I don't know, Carl. Until they get bored and wander on to the next town, I guess. Well, why don't we hunt them down and deal with them first? Matthew Olivet spoke from behind Carl. William shifted his gaze to Matthew. You mean hunt them down and kill them? His voice was flat. Matthew clenched his hands into fists a couple of times as he considered the words. Well, why not if they're going to start killing us? They haven't yet, though, have they? William asked. Well, they might have. You just said so. The burly quarryman was losing his assurance. William stared at him for a long moment. Are we killers then, Matthew? His eyes turned harder than Tanith had ever seen them before. Are we the kind of people who'll hunt men because we're afraid of them, too weak to hold what's ours by right? But you just got done saying they're going to come back and start getting serious about hurting people, William. You just said. He looked for support from his cronies. Didn't he just say that? They nodded and muttered assent, but Tanith thought it wasn't particularly enthusiastic. William crossed his arms. And they very well might. I fully expect that they will. Matthew grinned, feeling vindication, but William wasn't done. And they might not. I could be wrong. They might have a change of heart and a sudden infusion of the all-mother's love and decide to become wandering monks. Carl sniggered, and Matthew looked confused. What are you saying, man? Those boyos are no more going to find religion than I am. He realized that Tanith was standing behind his left shoulder and turned with a gruff and slightly embarrassed smile. No offense, Mum. Tanith smiled and nodded in acknowledgment, but didn't speak. I don't think so either, Matt. William softened his stance a bit. And if they show up here to do us hurt, they'll find that Mama Mapleton raised no cowards. He looked from face to face. But if you boys can't see the difference between self-defense and murder, we need to have a bit of think about that. The word murder set them back. William pressed his advantage. They haven't even made any demands yet, just vague threats. If we keep our heads up and our backs covered... They may decide we're too tough a nut to dig the meat out of and go their way. That logic touched something in Tanith. Would they succeed in driving the thugs off only to have the next village down the pike get somebody hurt or even killed? The thought made her queasy, but she understood William's point. In the face of their crumbling resistance, William offered a token. We'll keep watch for three more days. If nothing else happens, then we'll talk about it again, and we can get back to normal. That seemed to satisfy them. They looked at each other and nodded before nodding to William and tramping off between the huts. Thomas stepped out of the shadows and into the light of the doorway. He nodded to Tanith and then crouched down so he could talk directly to William where he stood on the lower floor of the hut. You believe that, Will? They'll leave us alone? William shook his head. We keep up the guard for three days. They'll strike. It's been two days now and Dandy Andy was never the most patient of beings. His eyes turned hard again. If he can't strike us, he'll lose the confidence of his men. He can't allow that to happen. Thomas grunted his agreement. So what do we do? William's face lost its hardness and he shook his head in frustration. We wait until they move, and we pray to the All-Mother that we see it coming and can protect ourselves against it. Thomas pressed him. And then what? Tanith thought that William aged ten winters in that one question. He shrugged. And we do whatever we have to do. Thomas must have seen it, too, because he glanced up to where Tanith and Megan were observing from the edge of the light before looking back at his friend. It's not going to be pretty. William nodded sadly. Yes, I know. He looked at Tanith. You haven't had any more visions, Mom. Tanith shook her head. No, but when I do, I'll let you know. Thank you, Mom. That's all I can ask. 
Thomas stood up from his easy crouch and sighed. Well, I best go find Carl. He's got guard duty with me till midnight. And I better get some sleep. William smiled. I've got to relieve you. With a nod, he closed the door again. Thomas turned to Tanith and Megan. Can I walk you ladies home? His smile was a slash of white in the dimness of the not-quite-risen moon. Megan giggled. If you like. Tanith laughed. All fifteen paces of it, and we'll be grateful for your company, kind sir. Still, he walked with them, keeping an eye roving across the shadows and alert to the sounds of the wind in the treetops and the night birds in the forest. He stood outside until they'd closed the door and latched behind them. From inside the door, the two women didn't hear him leave, but Tanith knew without a doubt that he'd gone. Megan turned to her, her eyes wide. What do you think William meant by, we'll do what it takes, Mum? Well, my dear, I think he meant we'll do whatever we need to do to protect the people of the village. Yes, Mum, but that sounded ominous. She shuddered. Tanith shrugged. Well, maybe it won't come to much. Bullies tend to back down when confronted. Megan looked unconvinced, but nodded a half-hearted agreement. They returned to their usual places beside the hearth. The day was winding down, and both women felt it. Standing outside as the day chilled to night had left Tana thinking that a hot cup of chamomile tea would go nicely before she crawled into her bedroll. She started to stoke up the fire, but Megan stopped her. You just let me do that, Mum. Megan pressed her back into her seat by the fire. I'll make us a nice cup, and then we can get some sleep. Tanith let the younger woman fuss over her a bit, and soon they were seated side by side and sipping their tea. The companionable silence was broken only by the occasional snapping of the fire and the odd snort or moan from the pile of children sleeping in the corner. What do you think will become of us, Mum? Megan's voice was low, and she stared into the fire with a dreamy expression. Tanith sipped and felt the warmth of the liquid sink down her throat. Well, that's not for us to know, I think. Her voice was equally low, barely a murmur. She, too, was rapidly gazing into the play of the flame above the log. All we can do is the best we can do. Try to live a good life and deal with each day the All-Mother gives us. Megan sighed. I know, Mom, but with these thugs out in the dark somewhere, and Harry out on the road, and even the quarrymen getting restless... She paused and sipped from her mug. Seems hard to believe we'll be able to get an inbuilt in all this. Tanith gave a little sideways shrug. Well, my dear, all we can do is try. If things don't go exactly as planned, well, I think that's why the All-Mother gives us tomorrow. She turned to the younger woman and smiled gently. Speaking of tomorrow, we should probably get some sleep. Tomorrow will be here soon. Megan glanced at her out of the corner of her eye and smiled in return. True enough, Mum. She nodded at the sleeping children. This bunch will be up looking for their breakfast before dawn. They drained their tea mugs and rinsed them in a bit of clean water before setting them on the hearthboard to wait for morning. Tanith slipped into her bedroll after removing only her boots, while Megan banked the fire and prepared herself for sleep. In moments, the two were snug in their beds, the fading light of the banked fire giving the room a sunset glow as they drifted out into the sea of sleep. Thanks for listening to Ravenwood, a Tanith Fairport adventure. Music is The Hill, composed and produced by Ivan Chu. Find this and other works by Ivan Chu at www.archive.org. You can learn more about the composer and his works by visiting his blog at myrightbrain.wordpress.com. This has been a presentation from Durandis, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. 
For more information on Tanith Fairport and stories from the Lamas Wood, visit www.lamaswood.com.